Hey, Osiris listeners. We want to tell you about our friends at Sunset Lake CBD who support this show. Sunset Lake CBD is a Vermont hemp farm crafting affordable CBD products designed to help with sleep and stress without breaking the bank. If you haven't tried CBD before, take it from me, it's a game changer. I use Sunset Lake's tincture every night before I go to bed, helping me get solid, restful sleep. And their gummies are great for daytime. Check out their new Good Vibes gummies, which have just a bit of hemp-derived THC to help you relax and unwind. Sunset Lake CBD crafts products with hemp grown on their family farm and ships them directly to customers. They have tinctures, salves, edibles, coffee, smokables, and even pet products. By the way, their CBD chocolate fudge is awesome. Check them out today at sunsetlakecbd.com and use coupon code TIME for 20% off all products. Sunset Lake CBD, farmer-owned, Vermont-grown. Welcome back to the Comes a Time podcast. I'm Mike Fenoya. And I'm Oteil Burbridge, and we've got the best one today. I know you thought, who are they going to do after Bob Weir? Someone who got on the bus before the Grateful Dead did, the empress of our whole scene, Carolyn Mountain Girl Garcia. Yeah, we had MG. We got her on a hot day on the farm. We told her, give the tomatoes a break and come talk to us. <laughs> and uh, boy, what a, what a thrill. I mean, the fact that we're able to, you know, how full circle this all is and how we're able to chat with really the folks that got this whole thing started it's just so unbelievable. And, and especially, you know, when we're all kind of locked up at home and we can't be together as the community. Um, she shed a lot of amazing light on uh, what we've been talking about this whole time, man, about a bit of being available to the moment. Pretty wild. Yeah, she is uh, uh, so much fun to talk to. And uh, I'm really glad that we weren't limited, you know, by a short time. I hate our whole soundbite culture, you know, <laughs> and uh, it's nice to just meander with someone and uh, God, you know, the living history that, you know, all of our guests represent um, is something to really be uh, grateful for. And that's why we want to try to interview a lot of people while they're still here, regardless of their age, because none yeah. of us know how much time we have, but the memories in her head, man, that was just, and she's such a easy person to talk to and uh, just really intelligent and funny. So we had some good laughs. Yeah, yeah we did. And, and, you know, it's, it's been a uh, kind of a running theme in my life since I, I met Keezy to be, you know, uh, I, I like talking to as many people that knew him that I can because he changed my life and the way he changed a lot of people's lives. And, uh, MG was there from the start, um, you know, took the, took a lot of wild trips on that bus and kept the bus going, uh, both literally and, and figuratively. So, um, she's got a great line of products too, that, uh, we'd, we would love for you guys to check out to support yes, check her. Out Mountain girls, Botanica, they have a collection of therapeutic herbal products, health products for well uh, for well-being, brain fitness, and cognitive enhancement. So, uh, yeah, go and uh, check that out and support her and uh, enjoy this fun ride that we took on this last podcast. 
and stick around for a lot of very incredible guests and just O'Teal and I uh, on the Comes a Time podcast. We love you guys. Thank you so much for listening. Comes a time when the blind man takes your hand says, don't you see? Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. Comes yes. a Time podcast. Hi, O'Teal. What's up, Mike? I'm so excited today. <laughs> we have the queen. Is this really the first time you've done this? No. I didn't think so. I couldn't no. be. <laughs> it's O'Teal's it's O'Teal's second or third. Okay, good. I'm an good. old grizzled veteran. Indeed. <laughs> okay. it, it, it's an honor to uh, welcome and introduce to our listeners, uh, Carolyn M.G. Mountain Girl, uh, Adams, Garcia, everything. Correct. That's it. The, uh, the, it's such an absolute honor to be talking with you. And uh, this is um, coming out to the listeners during uh, the days between our, our holiday. Our, mm -hmm. I call it Deadhead Hanukkah because it's uh, eight crazy nights <laughs> <laughs> of celebrating Jerry's life. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> just for the time, just for the calendar. Right. But thank you so much for, for joining us and uh, mm -hmm. taking some time to chat. Yeah, we're super happy to have you. Well, it's 90 degrees outside here, so I'm really happy to be inside and uh, sitting in a cool house. So, Yeah, how is it? out on the farm, right? I am out on the farm. I'm, I've, I haven't been back to town except for doctor's appointments for the last fa almost five months now. And it's, yeah. I'm getting used to it, and I'm actually starting to say, well, it looks like I've moved. And uh, so I'm out here with my cat. And, and, you know, it's a little lonesome, so I'm really glad you guys called. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> You're welcome anytime. Um, is it just you and the cat? Yeah, me and the cat. Have you started to uh, talk a lot, free, long verse to the cat, like I do with my dog? I actually sing to the cat now, but he's deaf, luckily, so <laughs> <laughs> he doesn't get too upset. <laughs> That's wonderful. Yeah. Oh, man. Um, you know. MG, you and I met in 2001 at Horning's Hideout. I was in uh, the Willamette Valley visiting Ken Kesey. Oh, I wow. Him, I met him at a fish concert in 97, and I asked if I could interview him for a senior project. Mm -hmm. He invited me out to his farm, and I lived with him uh, at the farm, at the barn. And uh -huh. uh, you and Barlow... I believe, called him and said, hey, we're up at Horning's Hideout for string cheese. Why don't you come up? And he wasn't feeling well. And he said, right. I'm going to send my guy up. And he threw me the keys to the pickup truck. And I met up with Jane, uh, Zane and Jeb. Uh -huh. No, um, Simon Babs. Yeah. And we drove up and met up with you. And uh, we hung out and, and watched their unbelievable show at, at Horning's Hideout. And, so uh, that must that must have been string cheese. Yes. Oh yes. boy, what fun! I mean, we had so much fun at Horning's Hideout, and and I'm just wondering what they're doing there this year. Probably just a few little weddings, <laughs> you know. It's 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 just one of the more special venues I've ever been to. It kind of takes the cake, actually, for Pacific Northwest immersion. And, it really. Uh, that band and, and the, the choreography of it all and the design, yeah. they really turned it into 
you know, this kind of land that you would imagine in a children's book that lives underneath a mushroom where the gnome- it is it is it is that's what i mean it's like the quintessential northwest uh setting and to have a stage there and the little lake and the you know the trees are growing really really fast i was kind of shocked the last time i went up there was how big the the all those giant fir trees have gotten Wow. Since I first started going there, and I figured, oh, it's probably because the hippies are peeing on them at, at, at night, you know, and they're <laughs> they're getting a lot of extra fertilizer, and they they've like doubled or tripled in size in in wow. fifteen years or so. It's kind of ridiculous. And then this beautiful evening that they have there, this long, soft evening light with the bands playing. It's just a special place. It really is beautiful. And O'Teal and I were talking about the, you know, that Keezy trip, me at 21 years old, going out there and meeting my hero's heroes. Ken was like the most unbelievably warm and welcoming person to me, a stranger from the Northeast. And he picked me up at the bus station with a ban the bullet sticker on the side of his pickup truck. And I thought how apropos 19 years later, we still need that sticker more than ever. We need, we need that sticker more than ever. It was, I mean, everybody kind of poo-pooed his concept at the time that didn't seem very realistic, but it, it actually makes a great deal of sense. And, uh, you know, it's easier to get a gun than it is to make a bullet. So if you had to make one, you wouldn't be shooting your gun off very often, <laughs> you know. But, he, you know, he had a great idea. And he had a lot of great ideas. In fact, Ken... Keezy was an idea factory that sort of never shut down. Uh, it, it's, I think he probably had more good ideas than anybody I've ever met. And uh, of course, not, of them were, not all of them were essentially practical, but they were good. You know, he had a, such a sense of humor about, about making up stuff, about what we, what we could do. You know, so he was an inspiration to everybody that came to see him. Just like you said, he would, somehow plug into whatever it is you were interested in and then throw in a whole bunch of ideas and uh, get the conversation going at a at breakneck speed. He was so good at that. We miss him so much here. It's, it's ridiculous. It's, it's, he left a horrendous vacuum, as did Cherry, for that matter. You know, it's just like, dang. And yet people carry on. So Zane is still driving around with the bus he goes to various events, especially, you know, uh, he went, he, I ran into him at the Hemp Fest in Seattle last year and uh, had a great time hanging out with him there. But the old, that bus is, a, is a, the second further, and it is just a beautiful thing. He has done a gorgeous job with that bus. It's funny, when I was visiting uh, in 2001, we came across the internet, the, the, the original the 1939 harvester that yeah. was in the backyard covered in moss. Right. And, and Ken and I Ooh. were scraping moss off the side of the bus. And it seems like the nutrients in the moss almost gave the paint job a, a revitalization. So when he was scraping the moss off, he was seeing all these bright colors and I could see how excited he was getting. Mm-hmm. And I, It was one of those things that was very like, what the hell am I doing here at the time? But yeah. now looking at it, it's like it was all supposed to happen. And, and I felt he knew I was a little bit green behind the ears and he was, you know, holding my yeah. hand through it. So 
It was just an unbelievable experience. Well, that's very, it was very smart of you to go there. I think, you know, that that's kind of what I did. Only I was, I would think I was 18 when I did that and showed up at Ken's place and had the bus, the incredible flash of what the bus was. And in those days it was still pretty fresh and didn't have moss on it yet. <laughs> But uh, the poor old bus—it's kind of a—it's kind of uh, rusted out now, and there's not there's not a lot of paint left on it. But it's still it's in the bus barn where it belonged. It, they pulled it up out of the swamp a few years ago and put it in the bus barn. So, but it's looking it's looking kind of fragile actually right now. So Jeez. I'm afraid it's rusted it's out. The, it's from the '40s, isn't it? That bus? 1939, 1939 I think it was yeah, yeah 1939 and it had a, it had a big uh, early adolescence as a school bus so it got you know and then it was the prankster bus for at for really and went to Me we took it all the way to southern Mexico and banged around and I mean and you know it's got it had the worst shifting seats it's something called compound shifting which they used to have before there was automatic transmissions and it's like this super complex little dance you have to do with the with the with the um, sh big shift lever on the floor which had a sort of like a little pull-up thing and a this and it had to go like this and this and this i could never figure it out myself so it, it took a special person who had grown up running farm equipment to actually shift the bus and get it to go. And so anybody who'd had experience with, with old tractors and combines and hay balers and all that kind of stuff had, didn't have that much trouble with it, but what a Is that dog. Why Neil Cassidy looked like he was always dancing around up there. Oh yeah. Well, that was Neil. Neil was, Neil was dancing wherever he was. It didn't, you know, he often, you know, he sort of drove the, bus by magic I thought you know because he often just didn't touch the wheel you know he just would take his hands off the wheel and he'd be playing his flute <laughs> you, gotta, you know how did we ever stay alive I don't know it is so funny. when you went down to Mexico was that when you guys were on the run from the police we were indeed uh, I had gotten out on bail uh, after our bust on the rooftop but, but Ken skipped and uh he was he was supposed to go in and they and he ran so god it's a long story all of that and it seems so long ago now and so colossally kind of dumb but you know to get to get all these agencies looking for you that's not a really smart thing to do you want to figure out a, a, a better deal for yourself yeah plus anyway, a gigantic we were, waste of money too on their part it it was very expensive, yeah. So, um, we God, when was this? So this was right after the um, Trips Festival in San Francisco, and the Trips Festival was really pretty much the first event of its kind that was a hundred percent electric, <laughs> to say the least, and. Uh, it was just wild and it was a it was a a collaboration of a number of different little you know weirdo groups who had instruments or had you know was, or had um interesting sound generating equipment or light shows and all this stuff so we didn't even know most of the folks that were performing there but uh, i spent as a prankster i spent my entire time gathering up the film that wasn't spooling property on our projector 
So, you know, every time I turned around, there'd be more film all over the floor and I'd have to go hand wind it up. So I missed a lot of the show because we were doing, we were doing the projections and uh, got to, you know, lean over the railing and see what was going on. Wow. And definitely, definitely a tremendous amount of, of action down there on the floor. But that was the end of our, of our stint in San Francisco. We left, uh, we left very shortly thereafter for points south and kept going. Mm. <laughs> That's when you did your cross country trip. I I missed the cross country trip. I was I came I came onto the prankster crew the day I met them the day after they got back from that trip. Ah, I got you. And Neil Cassidy had been out and about in Palo Alto, uh, scoring some weed and you know running into his old friends and and I and. He, and he picked me up at the coffee shop because I was sitting there all grumpy and he came over and chatted me up and I thought, Oh, this is, this is more fun than me sitting here all grumpy. And uh, so they said, yeah, come on, we'll take you. We'll, we'll go for a ride. We got to go up to so-and-so's house to, to score some, something, you know? And I got in the car with these guys and the car was like this nice white, Ford station wagon and it had this weird insignia on the door and I'm looking at Neil who was like such a character and I'm thinking what am I doing and I'm looking at the insignia on the door of the car and I'm going well what does that mean uh it is I-T-I-S and uh and he says oh that's a church group <laughs> <laughs> and, it, and, it, and it wasn't it was the prankster insignia for intrepid travelers uh information service or something like that so Amazing. so i i thought oh that that'll be safe it's a church group you know <laughs> I wonder how many people he used that line on it's a church group get it worked. in <laughs> it worked i got in I got in, and by the end, by four o'clock in the morning, we were pulling into their to Kesey's yard, and there was the bus. And I, and I just, I swooned. I was, I was so taken with the bus, you know. I just felt it all over, and it was so incredibly encrusted with paint and stuff. And mm. oh, it was just wonderful. You know, just wonderful. As a as a kid growing up with my dad's and my uncle's records and staring at every single album cover and trying to, you know, dive into the world that, you know, it had in it. Um, the Grateful Dead was the first band that really kind of spoke to me on a level that was beyond anything else. And I, at eight, you know, nine, 10 years old, had pictures of, you know, Jerry and everybody up on my wall and a picture of the bus. And then I went to a fish concert in 1997 and there comes the bus. The, you know, and, and Keezy yeah. and the guys hopped out and mm -hmm. that's when I first met him and I was 17 and I went Great. running over to the bus and I, it just like you said, <laughs> yeah, that, when you first I get see it. it, when you, when you physically first see that thing, you're like, it's a shock. It really, yeah. You know, it's so wonderful and yet so completely unsafe looking. <laughs> It's like, you know, a school bus is a representation of safety, right? And then you see it like that, and it's like, oh, my goodness. Cosmic so, safety. Yes. For sure. Yeah, it's like the Starship Enterprise, but it's not yes. nearly as safe. If it was hand-painted, yeah, like that. Yeah. But, you know, we always, you know, whenever we got together, we would always have, you know, spend a little time working on the edges of the paint, you know, and doodling and add, adding a few little things here and there. 
So it's still a work in progress, frankly. This further two is absolutely fabulously beautiful. Zane's bus, Zane Kesey's bus. Yeah. And it's, it's a brilliant work. He's done a gorgeous job with that bus. And it's really set up more for comfort and people with carpeting and stuff. <laughs> All further, <laughs> it's like wooden bunks. And, you know, it's just kind of horrible. But this one is this one's very beautiful. And it's a 19, I think it's a 1945 or something like that. So it's a little newer, slightly. Wow. <laughs> you upgraded yeah, slightly. to 45. <laughs> <laughs> you know, O'Teal and I have had conversations about, it, just as early as today about, you know, Keezy and Jerry and the group that you guys sort of all formed together and got this scene, you know, obviously the scene goes back to, to prehistoric times, but I mean, the scene, our leg of it, mm-hmm. you guys kind of got kicking into high gear and, and we, we owe you a debt of gratitude. And it's amazing that we're all here today to be able to talk about it. And it just, we're both kind of like, so awe-inspired by the message of that, that Kesey had of just kind of being the star of your mm-hmm. own movie and going for it and, and about bringing peace and kindness to the, you know, through humor and through kind of self, yeah. you know, killing the ego. Indeed, and, and, and also being available uh, to people as he made himself available to you he would do that with people, new people that he met that he thought would be receptive to whatever thoughts he was having that day. So, you know, he was, he was a really uh, open person to new newness and new people, which made him a gateway drug all by himself. <laughs> I love that about it because I watched him talking about that. Like he said, you know, my books are not my greatest accomplishment. Like, the bus and making now like being involved in now Mm -hmm. this perpetuating thing is the greatest accomplishment and that everybody can join in that you know and it's amazing to me that it was seen as so subversive and extremist and you know it's just like everybody's getting together painting this bus and just like we're just going our own way Mm-hmm. And now we have FBI files and and the other irony to me, and that's one thing I wanted to ask you about, was that the government's the one that started all this. I mean, they created the asset and gave it to the military and then gave it to people at the college. And yeah. now you're all mad because you couldn't control it. And now it's like, you know, you clamped down. I wonder, it must have been such a weird thing to go through. Well, you know, basically, we, I personally didn't know the story till much later, you know, about how LSD came to be part of, part of the government's uh, secret program and all that. So a lot of that information was just buried. Ken found out about it fairly early, uh, but not the way you think. I mean, he was, he was working at the, at the uh, asylum as a night, night watch guy you know, looking after the, the people who were locked up there, the real, the real nuts. And, and he, he happened onto a, a, a part of that building, which had been locked up for years, where the, where the MK Ultra stuff had been going on. And then we met a couple of people who knew about that. And the story, the story started to gel, you know, suddenly we realized, wait, there's a continuum here. And um, I think that, you know, 
once you've if you're an inquisitive person once you've dabbled here you're 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 going to be interested in it for a long time because there's really no end to the human imagination and um we you know, i didn't really know much but i was i was very pleased when i when i got into psychedelics i thought they were pretty wonderful um i yeah, think absolutely. they're like uh for people that have not had mystical experiences Mm -hmm. or religious experiences, quote-unquote, which I have had since I was very young. And even with mm -hmm. having mystical experiences and quote-unquote religious experiences, you know, psychedelics was definitely like a tangible uh, extreme benefit. You know, if you don't go too far, like the way we did it, we were always doing like have a hit, and we just talk. You yes, know, that's what I think. That's exactly yeah. right. I think don't go too far. You know, just start small. You know, definitely because um, too much is easy, easily attained, and too much can really can drag you down in the long run. So, uh, having done that myself a couple of times, I, I'm I'm pretty I'm, I'm pretty much of I would call myself a lightweight at this point with psychedelics. So. Well, but um, you know, you know, and sometimes they're very inconvenient, and I, and I think people have used them badly, often in the past, and to their own to their own detriment. But carefully, and that's 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 just where it's got to be. I don't think Western culture really had a uh, as much of a tradition like say Native Americans with mm -hmm. peyote and different cultures around no the world. we didn't have a ceremony and we still really don't you know i think people are making their their own ceremonies now and i, and I, I don't even know what's going on really we can't yeah. know because there's the world is such a big and heavily populated place we can't know everybody and um or or how it's being used these days but I would assume it's pretty much the same way we were which was to you know enlighten and in and enliven, you know, it makes you more lively. Yeah, I mean, I took a month in the in the winter and did a micro dosing month where I took a small amount of mushrooms every couple mm -hmm. days. Mm -hmm. And um, the rule of thumb was if you felt it, you took too much. It was kind of more for tomorrow you were taking it. And um, I definitely had a couple of soft soggy moments where you know i would break down in tears at a right aid in the middle of queens but you know it was a good cry <laughs> understood no and you don't know when it's going to touch you don't know how that's going to touch you you know exactly. if you're out if you're out at the pharmacy at the middle in the middle of the night you could have a little <laughs> meltdown so yeah wisdom wisdom slowly enters the mind and you begin to learn how to manage that yes and, uh, and it's what, like just like what you said about just being available and being mm -hmm. being uh, you know I I think with trying to perform and trying to live a, a you know compassionate life and balance everything you start to bog down and I think that that critic starts to get a little chattery and I think that oh, yeah. the best thing that the psychedelics do on a micro level is it just kind of turns down the volume and well, it rolls up the windows a little bit and just lets yeah. you kind of be be present in yourself and and that to me is is if it can just do that I'll, i'm all for it forever and i think about the folks like us who have been to that other 
realm, seeing that other dimension, and then you see the ego-driven world, it makes you sad. It makes you really think, wow, it's sad that everyone can't realize that we're all the same species and we're all the same people and we're all here. You know, I, I think that the world can use a nice dose right about now. Right. The world's, pretty, the world's uh, having some problems right now. And I don't know if that people are ready for, for the, uh, you know, right now we have this other issue going on and, and it kind of has taken precedence over everything. And so who knew the world was going to suddenly change, you know, like it just did. And you know, in a certain in a certain way, the discovery of, of psychedelics for a lot of people was a similar global shift, although not quite to the degree that COVID virus is. So, you know, we're we're learning new behaviors. We're you know, we're entering into another phase of human development, which is a little bit mysterious right now. We don't really know how this is all gonna play out. And uh if if or if we're going to be stuck with this stuff forever so you know i'm i'm on the side of the of the pharmacologists who are working their asses off to get a vaccine for this thing and i'm just praying for that vaccine please i don't want to get this virus i don't want anybody else to get it but here we are in a in a crisis situation and um frankly i haven't i haven't really gone to psychedelics for any answers about this I think somehow I think I'm on the right route, kind of going back to nature, because I think that's the original psychedelic experience, the original religious experience. And if people, you know, can get back to like just embracing that simplicity, I think I know it's yeah. hard for people if you live in an apartment in New York, but, you know, where you are on the farm, it's got to be great to just, like, yeah. you know. Well, I'm, I'm isolating myself for a reason, you know, this is like, I, this wasn't my first choice for what I was going to do this summer. I thought I was going to go to a bunch of great shows and have a blast, right? Amen. <laughs> Amen to that. Dang. That's the, it's painful. It's, I'm still mad about it, you know, it's like, oh, rats, we could be having some, think of, and I look at the list of stuff we aren't going to, you know, that aren't happening, it's like. I had to erase my calendar because, like, every day yeah. they're showing me what like, we're gonna have a day off here. We're we gonna be playing here tomorrow, and I was just like, okay, getting emails play. that that concerts are canceled yeah. and festivals are canceled. Yeah, and, oh, it's you know, just, and I mean, you think about the, the about the collapsing of our whole economic uh, pyramid, you know, with, for the promoters and all of the people that work for them and the venues and everything. It's just a, it's colossal. And, you know, I'm not sure how we're going to, let's, let's just hope for the best. Well, and, and MG for the, to stick with that, you know, O'Teal and I kind of have talked a bunch about how he's, he's turned to comedy many times for, <laughs> for balance as a musician. I turned to music as a mm -hmm. comedian for balance. My, my, the one time I can just turn off is at concerts and I think about, and I go back and watch you know, the show from the creamery in 72. Oh, yeah. And I wow. look at some of them. I mean, yeah. when you think about those moments and you go back to those uh, uh -huh. places, you know, um, I mean, just what was the, what was the feeling like when you were, when it was all happening? Like I, 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 I try to oh. send my, that's easy. I was ecstatic, you know, I, was, I went dancing in a circle, you know, it was really pretty much what it was. And then, fielding a lot of a lot of people's interest as well so 
you know, meeting new people and so on. But, but, but I love the music so much and the energy that it generated. It was just a, you know, a vortex of joy for me that I could just step into and, and, ah, it was just great. Uh, those early shows, um, had a special feel because they seemed so radical. They were, they were, they were, they were radical acts. You know, they were full of, full of some kind of weird left-handed kindness, you know, where we were dishing out this really loud, raspy, not very great sound at first, you know, which got better and better as time went on until it became transcendental, you know, and it was, became a transcendental experience instead of just sort of a, uh, you know, a lot of R and B uh, and and noise and dance music. It's it sh it all began to shift into this other another plane. And I mean, what a ride! You know, really incredible. Uh, I think my mom and dad weren't real happy with it, but <laughs> Which makes but, it good. Uh, yeah, but these but, are yeah. these these were incredibly special days, and we kind of knew it. You know, we knew we had. The band knew perfectly well that they had broken through to another another plane of existence. You know, the the, the world had shifted, and um, they became acceptable. That was amazing. <laughs> That's crazy. It's pretty wild how that music has given me, at least, and I'll only speak for myself, but I'm sure millions of others, a place to go mentally, transcendentally, like you said, where when I'm stuck in a, you know, room because my surroundings are you know covid and yeah. and all this and i but i can go all i need is my headphones and it's like i'm visiting an old friend you know and it, and it's 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 really it's sad but it's also it makes you realize how important the music really is and how deep of a it's not just a two-dimensional thing i mean it, it it brings on dimensions of so such depth that's what makes it so hard for us because you know yeah. our community like the jam band community there's there's nothing without the live thing you know and you've got to be together but you know if you the, remember the lonely saxophone player in the subway tunnels in new york you know there's still room there's still room for those expressions but there's just we're just not going to have the big events yet for a while no. But I think the, the one or two people together can, can do a lot to raise the spirits of people. Just well, that's what we're trying to do with this. That's you why know, we're here. To connect. Well, this yeah. isn't exactly music, but <laughs> I guess well, just wait. we haven't <laughs> gotten to the musical part yet. We're, gonna oh, okay. we're all going to sing a song. But <laughs> Ooh. Okay. <laughs> were, you, were you a, um, was Kerouac the one that kind of was on the road, the thing that got you on the road? No, I thought that book that book didn't gel for me. I you know I couldn't quite figure out what it was all about. So uh, no, and I hadn't I hadn't even heard of Kerouac before I met met these guys. So so yeah, Cassidy would talk about Kerouac, and I was just going, hmm, I'm have to I'm going to have to get a copy of that book and see what it's all about. <laughs> but all that stuff is still living. You know, uh, a couple of the pranksters have turned it into a little show that they do where they go and beat they go and act out. Uh, the parts of Jack and Neil wow. talking in, in, you know, it was, yeah, it's, it's pretty wild. Yeah. And so they actually did a little tour last year and, and went around and, and spoke at a number of different book festivals around the States and uh, had a lot of fun being Jack and Neil 
for, you know, 20, 30 minutes a day. (laughs) And they just kind of make it up as they go along. They kind of got, you know, they, they're not reading lines. They're just, they're extemporizing and it worked well and people loved it. And it, and it reminds you that a conversation doesn't have to make sense. You know, it doesn't have to do, do that thing. It doesn't have to relay um, some kind of specific knowledge. It can just be a conversation and it can go anywhere. You, Othiel, we were talking about how um, MG had the, the, like just the, the amazing honor to be like among so many unbelievable people, you know, Jerry, we obviously had to ask about hanging out, getting to know Garcia, being around another idea guy. Um, how magical was the, those early days, the golden gate park stuff, the hanging out, just getting to know Jerry Mm -hmm. as a person. Was it just like lightning right away? I mean, everything you hear is just, he's just such a, a force that everyone would be drawn to. I actually didn't notice Jerry for quite a while because they were so deeply engaged with each other, trying to make their music fit together because none of them were like really qualified professional musicians. When we first met them, they were, they were a bunch of teenagers and hangout dudes with guitars. And, uh, I think Kreitzman was probably the, and, and Phil were the only two, seriously studious musicians at that time. Jerry played banjo, you know, he hadn't really played much guitar. And uh, I didn't, you know, they were just the band there for the first, for the first few months. And uh, it took a while because they would come in, set up, play their set and go home. They were they didn't really hang out and be part of the, the prankster weirdness that I was part of. And it wasn't, God, it wasn't until we came back from Mexico that uh, Jerry and I hooked up. But uh, during that whole period, you know, I was pregnant. I had, I had, I had a baby in, in, a, in a funky Mexican hospital. And I was having a huge adventure of my own. <laughs> it was pretty wild. But we were also, all of us, the whole scene completely broke. We had no money. I mean, it was trying to get gas money was, you know, pulling, pulling pennies out of your pockets. So, uh, yeah, I remember seeing the, uh, the, the pre-band gig at, at Kep- not at Kepler's bookstore, at the top of the tangent in, uh, in Palo Alto. I was working in Palo Alto at that time, and I was riding my bicycle down the street, and I heard this wonderful music and the place was just going whoa like that and this was wait this was pre-pranksters before i'd met anybody in palo alto wow. and there was the whole gang the, everybody that worked in the grateful dead office later plus jerry and pigpen and weir who was i think was weir's playing the uh stand up the, no the wash tub bass at the time and uh wow. i think you know it was so it was the people who became the crew, and it was, and it was so much fun. And that's a recording that you can get. It was they did a. Oh, was that Mother McCree's jug band? Mother McCree. Yes, Mother McCree's, yeah. okay. and yeah. it was one of their early gigs, and it was it was hilarious beyond belief. And uh, you know, I go, wow, these guys are really really amazing. But they're all very clean cut at the time. You know, everybody had straight jobs and. 
I think Jerry had just dropped out of the army. <laughs> you know, I have oh, no yeah. idea. I had, I never met any of them at that time. It took a long time to, to find a way to meet them. So. I, I really do wish there was more out there about pig. I, I, I wish there Indeed. was, I mean, he, he seemed like such a deep, sweet person. And so yeah. like an old soul kind of, and uh, you know, it, when the when the dead trailed more towards those longer jams and maybe Tom Constison would yeah. sit in and other things like then where pig would sort of not be in the front all the time. Right. It seemed sad a little bit. Well, he was the front man, you know, for, for a number of years. And uh, he would come out and do those long, fabulous blues tunes, you know, and add a lot of repartee to it and, you know, he was a very creative, but his history, you know, his personal life history, his dad was a DJ, a blues DJ uh, over in the East Bay. And so he, he grew up hearing all this stuff, you know, Lightning Hopkins and, you know, B.B. King. And he, he knew the material intimately. And so he could, he could step in and carry a show and everybody else was taking a little break or, you know, couldn't think of what to play next or whatever. He always had something ready to go. And, and as the front man, which means the guy that gets out in front and actually does a lot of the heavy singing, he, he performed beautifully, but his health wasn't good. And, uh, you know, he suffered from, from bad health from the day, I think, the, as soon as we knew him. But um, he, it was, he was such a unique character. Oh, my God. He was like nobody you'd ever meet before. He was completely himself. You know, he was not concerned about what other people thought about him. And, you know, it was, it was almost an impenetrable exterior. You couldn't quite figure out who he was behind the long curly hair and the weird bearskin jacket. And, the, you know, he just was, he, he was a unique guy. And he will always be missed in our scene. And I don't think anybody that, that was on tour with him understood just how ill he was in those in the last couple of years of his life and uh they just toured on and on and uh didn't realize that pig pen was just kind of not doing well but he had the repertoire of songs he could pull it out boom you know just and not only the song but all of the jive he could do all the jive he was so good at it and I feel like he's just, he's just like a lost treasure at this point. Yeah. But it's really great. You know, I think about um, all of you, it seems like that's the, the religion of the whole thing is like to be your actual authentic self. Like you, you have to almost let yourself be yourself to find out what that is. You know? and, and, and musically, that's, I think that's really important for musicians. They need to, they need to play what they, what they want to play. They need, you know, they, you know, that's when, that's when their full heart and soul gets into the music. Yeah. And, you know, I've, I've been to, I've been to so many shows, you know, where, where, where things didn't work, you know, the mics weren't working right. Somebody was getting bit on the lip by the hot mics and, you know, it's like, you know, and then it was just like, ah, and then, and then, you know, 20 minutes would go by and suddenly everything was okay and it would just blossom, you know, like yeah. a huge cloud of, of happy musicians working together. So to be able to survive the tough moments without, 
without quitting or, or starting to chew each other out for stuff, that they did a lot of that. They, they managed to keep going when, when they had, when Jerry had broken two strings, you know, he could still play and he would. Well, it feels like it spelled off stage too. Like that's what everybody was doing. Like, you know, yeah. when I think of uh, the pranksters that weren't musicians, <laughs> you know, it was, it like was most of us. <laughs> yeah. But that was the music. It's the thunder machine. You can play yeah. the thunder machine. Yeah. It was like yeah. the bus was the instrument and the yes your lives were the music you know and uh, i feel like that's what was so subversive and what was so revolutionary about it and threatening to the establishment it's like yeah. wow it shouldn't be that threatening you know but it yeah. was and apparently still is you know and also so, so freeing to the ones that got it though i mean it was like oh someone else thinks like i do yeah, right so so, you know, the Thunder Machine, for folks who never saw a picture of it, was parts of old car fenders welded together by, a, by a, an artist friend of ours, Ron Boise, who was a, a really good metal sculptor. I got to play it. And it's, you know, and then we, you know, it was this big, weird thing that, you know, like six feet tall with a lot of, st and then Kesey would put strings on it that you could actually tune, sort of. And it was meant that basically meant to be hammered on by a lot of kindergarten kids and so adults really liked it too but uh you know and then painting it was really fun too because it was these weird shapes that didn't you know it didn't amount to anything somebody finally put wheels on it toward the end and that helped a lot because it was a heavy sucker but you could just wheel it out into a parking lot and and people would just boom you know what is that what are you doing you know, it had these big, thick, heavy bass strings on it, so it would kaboom, you know, when you pull a string. And so people were completely charmed, not just by the machine itself, but by the thought, you know, that you could just make some dumb, crazy-looking thing like that. And, and it was fun, you know, because it was, it was so much about fun. Uh, the pranksters had a, had a lock on, on the fun things. They really, they really pursued... The fun trip. Hey there, Osiris listeners. I wanted to tell you about our friends over at Smart Wool. For more than 25 years, Smart Wool has been making merino wool socks and apparel designed to keep you comfortable. Because they want to help you play, laugh, and explore in the outdoors with every thread they knit and every step you take. Because they believe that comfort sharpens focus and lets you perform beyond your limits. They're here to help you feel good. Now, it's up to you how far you will go. Take 15% off of your first order at smartwool.com. Smartwool. Go far, feel good. You know, listening to The Grateful Dead is like listening to five different bands because you've got all those eras and you've got all those different time periods and members, but also it's also a lesson in life. And like you were saying, Otiel, you know, like it, it spills off into the crowd. If you study and and really get into the the mindset there's they weren't thinking about success they weren't thinking about mm -hmm. fame they were thinking about fun and they were thinking about you know the music was serious but they were thinking about just how do we keep satisfying our own you know goals which that that seems to me to be something that is freeing mm -hmm. you know from a comic standpoint i'm just like yeah i just want to 
speak from as purely as possible and just be happy with what I have to say and hopefully other people dig it. And it's fun to live like that because the dead kind of created the the foundation and the pranksters. And that's what I love so much about Keezy. He put me at ease. I was 21 years old. I had never left my home. Understood. Yeah. And he right away, he picked me up and he goes, you're one of those cigarette smoking beer drinking New Englanders, huh? And I was like, yeah. And he's like, I like that. And right away I was like, oh, cool. He likes me. And when we watched Jaws and we cooked and we, <laughs> we had such a good time. I helped him tie-dye dip the, um, the, the search of a cool place videos that he was selling. And right. I worked with him and Babs and, the, and, the, their, their, and, and it was right away I was a part of the family. And like you had said earlier, I feel like they knew the people that they knew were going to get it got it you know and that that's important misfits find each other yes thankfully yes and key you know keezy was very exceptional he had a lot of room in that brain of his for new for new faces and he knew how to incorporate your energy into what he was doing and you know and do that quite easily and quickly he was able to just reach reach over there and get your attention and get you to do the stuff he was doing, you know, working on those tapes and dip painting and doing all this little stuff. And it made him a lot more fun for him. He had somebody to bounce off of. So somebody knew that hadn't heard all, hadn't heard all this stuff before, you know? And so I think every, you were game. And that was being game is a big part of this. If you're not ready or if you're, feeling the big backup coming. Oh, I got to get out of here because this is just too weird. You go, go away. You know, if you, if you encounter these kinds of people, but if you're ready, this is, this is enlightening stuff. So you, sure yeah, was. you did the right thing. Sure was. <laughs> yeah. This was, just, this was like pre nine eleven, so I was able to, uh, I think statute of limitations is uh, some marijuana may or may not have made it on me Ooh. to the plane, you know, and I, as a gift yes. to him. Ooh. And uh, we tried some and he was like, this is nice, but I'm not really, do you mind if we try some of mine? And I was, whew, you know, already there. And we, he opened up a, a drawer and some green angels were like, like, you'd hear like harps and, oh yeah. And we smoked and I was uh, outside laying in his yard with playing with the peacocks. He had about a million peacock in his yard. <sighs> I was, uh, he started talking to me about all these old, when he first met Bob Dylan and Dylan had his head wrapped up and he was nervous to see, to meet Keezy and Keezy was excited to meet him and all these stories. And then Ken stops and goes, do you have your tape recorder going? And I'm like, no. And he goes, this is some pretty good shit. You might want to get your tape recorder. I'm all high and I'm trying to find, oh God. And it was just, Man, it was hilarious. That's a, he's, you're making a very good point that running all that gear when you're high oh. suddenly seems like the hardest thing you've ever done in your life. <laughs> like, it was oh my terrifying. God. You know, first your vision's a little off and, and you can't really remember where you put anything. And so it is, it's a huge <laughs> challenge. Sounds like you successfully navigated the, that particular was- waterfall. I was like, am I holding this too close to his face? Am I holding it too far? Should I, right. am I rude? I, yeah, but he was, he couldn't have been kinder. All of them. Do you still have those tapes? As a matter of fact, I, I do. And I, I oh, released a, fabulous. I released a, um, so the interview that I did was in his white pickup truck and uh-huh. we were driving around Willamette Valley. I hope I'm saying uh-huh. that right. Willamette yep. Valley. And uh, he had jazz on. And he had the window down and he was eating peanuts while talking. So 
I'm that sitting. Makes it hard. I'm sitting in the passenger oh, side. God. I'm yeah. almost kind of sitting in the middle. It was like one of those bench seat, you know, in the truck. Yeah. And I have the 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 tape recorder kind of under his mouth, and he's uh-huh. talking, but he's spitting peanut shells out the window and they're bouncing off the back window and flying at me. So I'm kind of dodging peanut shells. And so the tape was a little bit iffy. Um, I got back to school and he died in November and I transcribed, I sat in the basement at the library of my college and I transcribed all of it by hand and then typed it up and put it in relics magazine where it was published. And then the tape sat for a while. And then finally, mm-hmm. when you can digitize them and put them yeah. on an actual MP3, you know, a, a computer right. file. Get them out there. I did that and I scrubbed them and they sound much cleaner. We sound like we're sitting in a, in a dryer, like in a clothes dryer, but it still is very audible. <laughs> so we were able to, um, you know, I, I, I released one uh, tape of it that, where we go through basically the history of music going back from Billie Holiday all the way to the stones and the Beatles and going to see the Beatles with the dead and all of it. And, uh, but I have the tapes and it's, it's really, I have an hour tape of us in the, in the, the barn playing the thunder machine and the theremin and the saxophone and the, all the different instruments. So I'd be happy to share them with you if you'd like to hear them for sure. Of course I would. Are you kidding? Yeah. I don't have enough of that stuff. And, oh, I'd be, and it'd be an honor. It would be an all, honor. All of, all of, a lot of his stuff has gone to the, you know, to the various archivists and stuff like that. So I don't really, I don't really have access to a lot of that stuff anymore. So it's we always fun. It's and, always fun to get a new one. Yeah. What we, a we, we want to make a pilgrimage up to see you too. Yes. In Oregon. Oh and, yeah. And Mike. Wear your white robes, you know, just <laughs> walk all the way for sure. Make a pilgrimage. <laughs> no, no. Whenever that is, whenever we can travel again, we're hoping that soon. Yeah, real soon. Um, yeah. One thing that we were we were chatting about that we wanted to ask you was, you know, you're someone who no, I'm a road warrior comic that performs whenever, well, when I could. O'Teal touring like crazy. Mm-hmm. I thank my wife as often as I possibly can for putting up with the lifestyle that she. My proposal should have been now's your chance to leave, <laughs> but yeah. you know you're someone who had always. You're you're very industrious. You've got your own projects. You're not a, a tag along by any stretch of the imagination. Was it hard to, you know, as a wife, as a fan, as a woman of your own, like to be able to say, I'm not going on this tour. I'm going to. God. Live my own life, do my own thing. Was that? Was that? Well, you gotta remember, we had three kids, so it was like, uh, you know, the, sometimes it was just impossible, and and you just it didn't work. It didn't work to take three kids on the road. It certainly, and it didn't really work well for me to be gone from home for more than a week. So I would go, but just for very short periods of time. Uh, it's yeah, my response. My I think my my main responsibility and my personal programming shifted when I became a mom and I wasn't going to the parties there was a lot of parties without me. And I, and I would, and I would hear about these parties and I'd go, damn it, damn it, I really, really could use a good party, you know? And it was okay here. And here's the deal. So people would say, well, why don't you just get a babysitter? Well, hello. We were too weird for any babysitter. 
<laughs> and not only that, any babysitter that was weird enough for us wanted to be at the show. They didn't want to be at my house watching my kids. So it was very difficult to get a reliable uh, or anybody really, frankly, to watch, to watch the kids that, that was even remotely trustworthy. <laughs> so, you know, there was a lot of issues that go around having a family when you're, when one of the family members is out on the road and you kind of have to just let go. And so I became very good at letting go and uh, letting go of the, of being out, on the bus touring, letting go of being at the shows, really letting go of, you know, of the whole mechanism of how the Grateful Dead operated too, because I wasn't part of the crew. So I didn't get to go to the meetings, the crew meetings or hear really what was really going on. So I, I was, I wasn't real happy about that, but, <laughs> but it was, but it made life, it made life livable. And uh, we have three wonderful daughters. You know. absolutely do. I was going to say, your daughters certainly appreciate it. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And I just, <laughs> I think they do. I hope, I don't think they really remember that I had to skip an awful lot of fun. To <laughs> yeah, but now that they're older, I'm sure they can appreciate yeah. more, especially, you know. It's it's a different time now, and, and they're you know they're it's been a lot of times gone by, lots of water under the bridge there, um, so it's it's scary to think about how much time has gone by, and that all of this stuff is still a big deal. You know the the whole Grateful Dead caravan into life. You know how everybody jumped on. So many people jumped onto our bus. It was just incredible. And uh, that kind of brings me to what I wanted to ask you about mostly, mm -hmm. which is, uh, you know, when you say it's like everything, it's amazing. Everything is such a big deal. I feel it's still such a big deal. I kind of feel like that on the other side of the coin, on the negative side of the coin, like, you know, we're still struggling with these same old issues that yeah. the movement that we had back mm -hmm. then when you were uh, participating in it the first time. And I wonder that that's what I wanted to ask you about. Like, how does today's movement make you feel? Like, do you see us making certain mistakes that you made or, or do you feel positive about where it's going? Or do you feel like, geez, I can't believe in the 21st century, we're still like dealing with this, you know? Well, I, yeah, I don't know. I actually think the fact, one of the big facts is that the population has gone up so dr drastically that even a small enterprise can succeed if it, if it advertises itself well, you know? Mm -hmm. So I don't, I, I honor all the success that, that the whole Grateful Dead scene has had. I mean, it's astounding really considering, considering the, the kooky guys that I used to know, that, you know, it's like, oh. but I don't know how to, I don't know how to answer your question, Otil, because, because it's all been sort of magical. You know the the that this, the the quickness of connections that people suddenly make to you and to your life and you know you Otil you've now experienced you know what it's like to come into the Grateful Dead world and yeah. and become somebody that people recognize you know while you're ha while you're ordering an English muffin it, it, you know <laughs> five people are lining up behind you wanting to get your autograph and take your fucking picture 
pardon my French, no. but it's like, it's hard to have, you know, it's hard, so the, the public private on stage things, it's like three different worlds. And I guess got, I was you, talking about probably more in terms of like the protests that are going on right now. Oh, Civil this rights stuff, movement you know, back then versus the movement that's happening now. I, I've always the, wondered the what movement you think that, of that, you know? The movement that's happening now puzzles me. I'm not sure what's going on, except that people are frustrated and, and upset and it's hot and they're broke or whatever. I don't and get it. Quarantined. Because it's here. not, so far it hasn't been particularly productive. And uh, I would I would hope that a lot of people would get together in somebody's garage and start building a boat or something. You know, get a project. Get a project going. Uh, I don't think being out in the street uh, duking it out with a bunch of cops is, is productive work. Did Especially you experience a lot of that back then? I mean, you had to see some of that going we on. We saw, well, we, yeah, we were, t yes, yes, we did. And it, and it was something to run away from for me. I did not want to be part of it. Because you don't know what's coming when you're in that situation. You're the back of your head. You can't see out the back of your head. Yeah. And it's it's an invitation to get injured and to and to, to lose your shit out there. And I, I, I it's so dangerous. Um, it is for sure. I think there's a lot of anger, though, and, and I, ha I have to admit, I don't quite understand what's going on. Well, I, I think at first, uh, I, you know, when I look back at the old civil rights movement, it was super organized. Yes. Like, without internet, it, it's just unbelievable. And a lot of that was done through the churches. Yeah. And then they linked up with schools, like you see with John Lewis, you know, the um, yeah. student nonviolent coordinating. Yeah. Committee. But then it was all hooked up to these churches. But the thing that Stokely Carmichael, when it, when it, you know, he yeah. was like incredibly uh, gifted speaker. Oh, yeah. my God. Could he get an audience going? Yeah. You know, these but then I thought, were, well, you know, the, um, the thing that puzzled me about what's going on now is that it always seems so uh, decentralized. Yes. Which I thought is probably, I guess I was looking at that as kind of a detrimental thing mm -hmm. um, at first, but kind of withholding judgment, like, let's see what happens, because it's all kind of uh, anarchy in a way, you know. But I now I kind of changed my mind because I'm like, well, somehow, even though it's decentralized and there doesn't seem to be the organization that we had before, it somehow grew into the biggest civil rights movement in history. And then we did get all these things changed, like, you know, no-knock warrants are gone in Kentucky, and there's police departments being busted down to the studs and rebuilt, you know, and different things that are happening that I feel like are definitely happening because of the protests. But Here's the, here's the deal, Otil. We're not getting those stories here. I mean, I, maybe I live in Oregon and I only have three news channels out here in the country, but honest to God, the, the positive aspects of this are not making it into the, into the national news here. Interesting. Yeah. And Funny, so I really do think like the revolution is yeah. somewhat for better and worse. Certainly we can see for worse, but also for better, like on Facebook and Twitter and yeah, okay. Instagram. Like I, I don't, I don't watch mainstream uh, 
I call it corporate media anymore because I don't feel like uh-huh. it's really given me a full picture. Um, so, but I also like I only use Twitter for news. They're just like alternative news sites, which will deal with the corporate reporting and what was left out or what's just a lie or whatever, you know. Right. So I'm not missing out on what the corporate news is saying, but I'm getting the fuller picture. Good. And a lot of these things are up to the minute. I mean, some things are live. You're watching it while it's happening live, you know. And that part, maybe that is, maybe I kind of answered my own question is how it grew into such a globally huge thing without being organized because of that, you know. So it's uh, it's amazing the things that you do see on there, like day to day like stuff a lot of things have gotten done just since george floyd's murder that uh i'm like wow i think more things happened since then than the last 12 years (laughs) yeah i think that the 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 pulling down of the statues was an awesome act of courage Mm -hmm. um i'm sorry for the artists because some of that stuff was really nicely done you know people people paid pennies to have those things built but um but they, they all need to go somewhere to the sculpture graveyard. But um, or to a music. Yeah, I think I think the part that I the, the part that disturbs me the most is the active anger part, and it, it happens in the confrontations, and it's very difficult to keep that up. It's not good for you, and everybody needs to reach out and try to find some positive aspects of this. You know, yeah. it's and, important to find the positive. That's why it's sad we can't have the music because that could be quarantine that's what i was gonna say yeah it's it's right now we're at a time when and and folks like us who come from this world and this scene yeah that when we're together and you look across the aisle and you see someone that you've never met sweating and dancing and smiling and tears pouring you you feel that like we're connected you're another and that that is something that i swear to god the first i think i texted you oteal when i was watching the fare thee well um, repeat. I, the the minute I go to a, my oh. first concert, my head's gonna explode. Like I'm really so in. I know. Just see, yeah. you know the, the the shakedown, going through the parking lot, seeing people being resourceful and and friendly and feeding each other and hugging each other, and the, like that's the thing that has fed, and that's where from our scene, you hope that some of that might be able to trickle into. It, yeah, I I have to agree with you totally about that because that whole coming into a show that hasn't started yet and the, the, the joy that you and I would immediately start to feel that start bubbling up and you're getting all excited. I'm getting goosebumps now. <laughs> People that haven't had that experience don't have it when they when they follow you through the crowd. They're more nervous, like, where's my seat? I can't find my girlfriend. I, you know, blah, blah, blah. I'm going to get my pocket's going to get picked, whatever. There's, there's so many different levels of, of experience and expertise of navigating an, an event. I've almost lost my mind sometimes trying to get into events when, you know, oh, no, it's at gate A. No, no, you have to walk around to gate E. Oh, no, gate E's closed. Sorry, you got to go back to gate G, you know, whatever, or whatever it is. And you just, and you're, all you want to do is get in, you know, the, the, yeah. the supreme frustration of being shunned shuttled around at shows when you're not part of the audience and you have a special pass 
what pass is that? I have never seen a pass like that before. You know, so I've, I've had to have that happen so many times to the point where I'm in tears. You know, what? You're all the way into the middle of the first set before you even can set foot inside the stadium because the because security is so heavy. Yeah. And so we've all gotten so used to managing security that uh, there didn't used to be any security. I just want to point that out. We didn't have to have it. We didn't want it. And um, everything was pretty good. You know, it, it wasn't that bad without security. So I, I'm frankly against the national security movement. I really don't want it. I'm a responsible yeah. person. I'm not going to do anything weird. I just want to find my seat and sit down. So, um, People used to if we can make shows make that barrier less aggressive, you know, the barrier between the control freaks and the audience, uh, less of a of a hurdle. I think it, it, everybody would be so much happier. Absolutely. So I, and, and I don't. And what's going on in the streets? You know, I understand the anxiety and and the you know, sort of the pain that people are going through with it. And I just hope that they can find somebody to be the voice. Like, I don't know if you guys have ever listened to what Mario Savio did during the Berkeley riots. He was the voice of the Berkeley riots. And he, he was a guy that just somehow could bring it all together in a speech. Hmm. And just people would just calm down, just zoom, and they would be listening to this. And then, and, and he would deliver. He delivered incredible uh, content in a, in a very short period of time. And uh, you could actually listen to some of his speeches at the University of California at Pomona has it on their, on their archive, their library archive. And you can just go online and listen to him. How do you spell and his last name? S-A-V-I-O. Mario Savio. Mario Savio. Yeah, because then it was very political, you know, it's, oh, geez. But the riots were real, and they were big, and they were really angry, and a lot of people got hurt. And um, he, he was kind of like, he was able to help, help all that get sorted out. But I just don't want anybody to be out in the streets getting hurt. It just it bothers me as a mother. And as a citizen, and uh, I wish this this stuff could be resolved with 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 speech making and um, and conversation. Yeah, you know, just deep you. conversations and yeah. um, panel discussions and whatever. And the comes a time podcast with Mike and O'Teal. Yes, <laughs> right? this podcast is part of the solution. <laughs> that's well, all. That's, that's what, what we want. What we want to get to, because you know, but, I, but, what you're oh, saying. Go ahead. Do you think this is a revolution, O'Teal? Oh, absolutely. Okay. And, you know, part of it um, is reminds me, was it, what's his name? George Walker said something in a panel that I was watching you on with him and Kim Babs and mm -hmm. Zane. And he said, you know, back then, this, there was a wave that rose up. And we were there when it happened. And he talked mm -hmm. about the whole comparing it to uh, sets of waves for surfing. And there's wow. smaller yeah. sets and you wait for the big set. And then there's little, little waves in the big set, but you're waiting yeah. for the big wave on the big set. He's yeah. like, that's where we were. And we wrote it. And he said there was a catalyst that galvanized the whole thing, which was Kennedy's assassination. Oh, boy. And then he said something that blew me away. He goes, I feel there's another wave coming, but I don't know 
what the catalyst is going to be to galvanize the next thing. And this was yeah. before the pandemic happened. Yeah. He totally called it. And yeah. that's when I realized I was like, we're at this wave. And it's like the name of our podcast comes a time. Yeah. So it's here. And so it's not going to go away. That's what it taught me. Like the wave's not going to go until the wave plays out. And this is a big one. It is a so really big that, one. You know, the, the Mario Savios and the, you know, like James Brown used to do this back when the riots were like, he could calm the black community down, like where he was at in that city. Mm -hmm. He could like, yeah, make people just, he'd be like, Hey, mm. calm down. So there, there's some, you know, I feel like there's always people taking advantage of a peaceful protest. So we get locked into a place where it's like, oh, so I can't peacefully protest now because violence might break out from a low life that just wants to use the crowd yeah. to like oh, yeah. do something or an agent provocateur mm -hmm. that wants to pretend a, to be a plant. Yes. Yeah. You know what I mean? So it's like, but what about us that are just peacefully protesting? Like I can't stop because that's what seems to make change more than this incremental thing which i feel right. like we're out of time for it like the arctic is 100 degrees and yeah you know you're like talking about incremental change i'm like dude we don't have time for that anymore like no. we gotta no gotta drive this into the end zone so that's our my particular thing like i don't have i want to tell people what to do but i also want to help them learn about what happened before and so we know how it's different now and how we can move into the future and do it peacefully as much as we can, but get that change. Like, I, I don't know that pulling out of the streets is the way to do it because all these things happen yeah. when we no, stay in the that. streets, you know. But I'm scared. I've got nephews that are out there, and they're like, I got uh, <laughs> some kind of mask, not a gas mask, but then I got this thing that will for uh, something they wear. So if you get hit by the rubber bullets and I'm just like, oh. it's horrible. It's absolutely horrible. You know, yeah, they're in Charlotte, terrifying. North Carolina. And I'm just terrified. You know, Ooh, I was sitting yeah. at home watching, watching the, the DC when, when Trump tear gassed the crowd to make that walk to the church. And I have, you know, the DC improv is a legendary comedy club in Washington, DC and the entire staff and the managers and everyone. I are like family to me and I'm I'm at home and I'm like in tears and I'm calling them right. and texting them and I'm like, please let me know you're safe. Please yeah. Let me know that you're yeah. okay. And, 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 and it's, I feel like I can't, you know, my wife's in healthcare. She's a nurse and I see you and we can't like, I, I don't want to, you know, I have to stay. I can't leave her because if she gets COVID then, and I'm just like praying that like, just please send me a message and let me know that you guys are okay, you know, and they finally did. And it's just, so we're all feeling that like kind of, you know, what, what how do we do this? How do we do this safely and appropriately and properly, yeah. but also make an impact? And it's, you know, I think I've kind of resigned myself to wait to the fact that there's not really a way to do it safely. Yeah. Like they're not going to let the authorities aren't going to let us do it safely. And maybe human nature in general, like the low life that wants to lose. Right, to screw things up for everybody. That you know, guy. Yeah. 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 There's always one of those. Yeah. Oh, wait. At and every we, scene, no, but right? more of Savio's and James Brown would be like, hey, calling those people out, you know. So maybe we'd step up and do that. I don't know. You know. But you know, it's street theater, you know, the the old thing of 
going out, you know, everybody wearing a mask or everybody in a white robe or, you know, whatever your, whatever your theatrical vision is for getting your point across without getting your head broken in. It's it's important to come up with some gimmicks here, you know. I feel like people are just hurling themselves into the into the jaws of doom. I don't want them to do that. I don't want anybody to get hurt. It's completely yeah. It's well, really it's, a shame. Like, I, I yeah. It's like we're going up against about a, a thousand RoboCops too. When you see these videos of the oh, cops yeah. are in full, you know, full gear, NFL gear, hockey gear. I mean. It's or in Portland, like where you're at, like the, yeah, the unmarked troops. Yeah, that's right. super scary. It's like wow. It I don't know if you're like a white supremacist pretending to be. You have no idea who cop. these people are. If yeah, you're not. Yeah. <sighs> okay, let's get off that subject. Carol, MG. Yes, dear. I would like to ask you, and uh, you know, first off, thank you so much for like hanging with us and, and mm-hmm. we need to do this again, but comes a time Otil and I sat and thought about what's the name of this podcast and what lyrics or what song or what sticks mm-hmm. out, you know, and there's so many poignant grateful dead Hunter oh. Barlow lyrics mm-hmm. and, and song names and titles and Otil middle of the night, dude comes a time. And we started to think about the lyrics and the oh, chorus it's oh, absolutely yeah. perfect to what this yep. is. And what I wanted to ask you, when you go back or when you're listening to, you know, in the Grateful Dead lexicon of, of tunes, yeah. do you have any favorites that will bring a smile to your face? Or a t- I, know, <laughs> I know you're going to say, you're going to say all of them, but like, no, for instance, not all of them, Stella, but Stella so Blue, mean. Stella Blue and Crazy. That doesn't bring a smile. Stella Blue is a sad song to me. Yeah, it's a, it's a weeper. But uh, but comes a time is a, is a wonderful tune and I think it's very apropos for today. But um, I'm trying to think. Um, well, you know, Jerry wrote a tune for the band way back at the beginning, which they never play anymore, or they only played it a few times. Called Cream Puff War. Yeah. And I loved that song, and I could never figure out why they didn't use it more. But uh, if we could just all get out there and throw cream puffs at each other, maybe things would, instead of bullets and, and <laughs> angry words, it would be better. I love it. Wavy gravy for president. Exactly. Nobody for president. <laughs> Nobody for president. That's, That's what we Everybody have. for president. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Thank so you. So thank you, you guys. This is interesting. And I hope, I hope it all goes well, Oteil. Um, Thank you. I, I'm really pleased. And, uh, of course, I'm going to tell you your business by saying, get a headset like this so you don't have this microphone in front of your face. <laughs> <laughs> you know, they're bad. And you can get headsets with teeny-weeny little earphones. And they I have do. one somewhere. I even have, like, a noise-canceling one somewhere. Yeah. But, please, but good. please. This is good. Safe. Very organized. Thank you so much for organizing this for us. Absolutely. And uh, I, I, I really appreciate being able to blah, blah, blah with you folks on a very hot day in Oregon. When, and I really could be out there watering my tomatoes, but I can do that later. You could do that later. You're watering <laughs> yes. our tomato. Yes, so, uh, my tomato's getting watered. We um, <laughs> and thank you for sharing all those lovely stories about Ken. Because yeah, and I, I'll yeah. definitely send you via. I'll get your to your email or whatever. I could send uh-huh. you the, an audio link to uh, to to listen to the, and I'll send you a, a couple pictures yeah. of the pictures that I yeah. 
have from being there. So thank you so much. Thank you. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.